0: It's Tuesday, July 7th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is the Daily Dive. As the coronavirus continues its spread throughout the country, some hospitals are also struggling to contain the spread inside its walls. While it's only a small number of overall cases, US medical centers have reported over 5,000 cases of patients catching coronavirus after being admitted there for other conditions and that number does not include the case of medical staff that have caught the virus at work. Melanie Evans, hospital reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more on how hospitals try to protect both staff and patients from infection. Next, as we continue to monitor how the coronavirus pandemic is affecting the economy, for the retail sector, it looks like it will be a tough rebound. Retail lost about 1.2 million jobs between March and June, and many store closures that were supposed to be temporary might end up being permanent. Jennifer Kingston, managing editor for Business News at Axios, joins us for more. Finally, another sector hit hard by the economic shutdown is the freelance creative worker with multiple gigs. This is especially evident in places like Los Angeles that have built an economy around these freelancers. Performers, production crews, rideshare drivers, and personal trainers were among the first to lose work and will likely be the last to make a full comeback. Tim Puko, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for the difficult comeback of freelance workers it's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: Since May 14th, that excludes anything that occurred prior to that. But since May 14th, there have been roughly 5,000 cases reported voluntarily by hospitals that met this very high threshold.
0: Joining us now is Melanie Evans, hospital reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Melanie.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Wanted to talk about an interesting uh, facet of this whole coronavirus thing. And how it plays out in hospitals. Obviously people are going to hospitals to get the treatment that they need. Sometimes they're spending long stays there. And the hospital staff obviously uh, has to work with them. They have to work with regular patients as well. It can be a very difficult thing. And uh, right now we're seeing that U.S. medical centers have reported over 5,000 cases of patients that caught COVID-19 after being admitted to the hospital for other conditions. I think that stat was just patients but there's also a lot of uh, hospital staffers that are also catching it there from work as well. Melanie, tell us a little bit more about it, please.
1: Hospitals, even outside of a pandemic, go to some pretty extraordinary lengths to prevent infections from spreading inside the hospital itself. So you've got doctors and nurses taking care of patients Some of them have a contagious disease. You can think of measles, you can think of tuberculosis. And so hospitals have all of these various strategies for trying to ensure that contagious patients don't infect hospital workers and that the disease, whatever it may be, doesn't spread and you don't get a outbreak. Hospitals began to try to adapt the way they operate in order to prevent the virus from spreading internally what we found was that there was a pretty inconsistent approach across hospitals as the pandemic hit the united states and so as you as you noted hospitals are starting to report what they consider to be hospital onset cases so patients who've been exposed and contracted or suspected to have contracted covid-19 while inside of the hospital there isn't good data for exposure of hospital staff
0: And it's interesting. I mean, um, one of the things that kind of hinders this is the reporting structure that they use to be certain that an infection occurred in a hospital. You know, the federal government doesn't ask them to report everything. It's uh, somebody's got to be there for at least two weeks and catch the virus there before they'll report it as an infection. You got there at the hospital. So there's a possibility of a bunch of other people that could have gotten it before that two week span there. One of the hospitals that you focused on for your piece was the University of Illinois Hospital in Chicago. As you were mentioning, hospitals are trying to prevent the spread of this thing as much as they could, but even still, it got through. And by mid-June, more than 260 nurses, clerical staff, custodians, techs had contracted the virus there. Four staff members died. So even still, it's, it's just tough to contain all of this.
1: The standard, the threshold for reporting a case of a patient contracting COVID-19 inside the hospital is pretty high. It's also voluntary. (laughs) So for those reasons, the infectious disease experts we talked to said the number is likely higher. So we've got about 5,000 cases since May 14th. That excludes anything that occurred prior to that. But since May 14th, there have been roughly 5,000 cases reported voluntarily by hospitals that met this very high threshold. And to your point, we've looked at one specific hospital that struggled with these protocols for keeping patients and staff separate. And when we interviewed staff and the head of infection control, what we were told was it is likely that the virus spread internally, that they were investigating, but they declined to to share with us the results of their investigation, citing privacy. Four employees have died. Joyce, Packabas, LeBlanc. She's a 53 year old nurse. Juan Martinez, an operating room technician who worked on the third floor. Maria Lopez, a nurse who worked in the third floor operating unit. And then a phlebotomist, Edward Starling. He's 61 years old and he died on June
0: 17th. You know, speaking to what you were saying about some of these protocols, they isolate infected patients. The buildings are engineered to help reduce the viral spread. A lot of people talk about these negative pressure rooms which kind of suck the air out so the virus doesn't stay in there. But then there's other research that shows that there's been uh, particles of the virus kind of in the hallways outside of those rooms. So it's a very difficult thing to contain. And, and to be clear, these numbers that we're talking about, these over 5,000 cases, these are a very small fraction of the overall number of cases. But, you know, it's hard to for a lot of people to feel comfortable there if certain things like these are happening Um, You know, it just complicates everything. Uh, The contact tracing is difficult in the hospitals, especially at the University of Illinois Hospital that we were talking about. At one point, there were so many people that were getting sick, it was hard to do the contact tracing there.
1: They continue to work to boost their infection control practices. As we reported this story, we talked to hospitals across the United States over several weeks, and in the course of that, reporting hospitals described the ways in which their protocols and their efforts were changing. So early in the pandemic, testing was limited. There was no requirement that everybody wear a mask. Now, testing is more widespread and hospitals have policies that require universal masking. Patients and staff are being asked to wear masks to help slow the spread of the virus hospitals in the course of the pandemic raced to re-engineer their ventilation systems and add negative pressure rooms. So yes, it is sort of, it is an evolving response by U.S. hospitals in order to try to contain any possible outbreaks.
0: Hopefully, as we continue to get through this, the hospitals can learn to manage it as best they can. Melanie Evans, hospital reporter for The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me. More and more offering it as we urgently search for safer ways to shop. So now you can pick up your goods at places like Best Buy, Home Depot, Kmart, grocery stores like Whole Foods and Walmart. This is the coming trend in retail. Joining us now
0: is Jennifer Kingston, Managing Editor for Business News at Axios. Thanks for joining us,
2: Jennifer. Great to be
0: here. wanted to talk about some more of the economic effects of the coronavirus pandemic. People's buying habits have been changing. Obviously, they're moving more onto this online space. And one of the biggest things that's been happening, accelerated more because of the pandemic, it's a trend that we've been seeing already before that, was the retail store business. Things have been not doing so well. You look at places like malls have been shuttering for some time now. Everything's being accelerated And there's a lot of retail stores that are not going to be able to weather this storm are going to be closing permanently in a lot of instances. Jennifer, tell us a little bit more about this.
2: The retail landscape is changing before our eyes, and what started before the pandemic has been speeding up in what one of my sources referred to as accelerated Darwinism. According to one firm that tracks retail store closures, a record 25,000 retail stores in the U.S. will close this year, which is just a staggering number. We've all seen it kind of playing out stores that closed because of the state-by-state shutdowns are staying closed for good, even if the parent company is staying in business. One of the more interesting trends is known by the, an acronym that we're going to hear more about, what is called BOPIS, which is buy online, pick up in store. And while well, a lot of stores started this before the pandemic, more and more are offering it as we urgently search for safer ways to shop so now you can pick up your goods at places like Best Buy, Home Depot, Kmart, grocery stores like Whole Foods and Walmart. This is the coming trend in retail.
0: And what does that do? It transforms the business landscape. <laughs> it makes these retail places more of like fulfillment centers than a traditional retail store now so there's a lot of businesses that have to rethink that model.
2: I spoke to one architectural firm that works with retailers, they're installing loading docks in the back of some stores so that you can have a hybrid store where in the front, it's a traditional store the way you might think of it. You and I would go in and browse and maybe buy something. And in the back, they've got people who are fulfilling internet orders and they're being taken off in trucks. That's going to be a wave of the future. We're also hearing about a trend of dark stores, which are traditional retail stores that have been wholly converted to local fulfillment centers. Chains that are doing this include Bed Bath & Beyond and Kroger. They're just taking stores that don't get as much volume and they're turning them into delivery places.
0: So what's going to do is going to really limit a lot of our choices. Big places like Amazon, where everybody's already doing a lot of their shopping, those will obviously continue on. It's going to be a survival of the fittest for a lot of these national chains and how they can adapt to this.
2: They're all trying so hard. Unfortunately, what I'm hearing is that a lot of the smaller retailers are just gonna be squeezed out. The larger ones are gonna have the resources to make the changes that are necessary in the COVID-19 era. They're gonna install disinfecting stations so that you can have your hand sanitizer. They're gonna have greeters who are taking temperatures and reassuring customers that everything has been sanitized. They're placing arrows and signage on the floor to direct flows of pedestrian traffic. We've seen this already, but as we know, brick-and-mortar retailers desperately want us to come into their stores and browse, and they're having to find a balance between those sanitary measures and the kind of forbidding aspect of operating in the pandemic and continuing to make shopping a pleasant and fun experience with a, an entertaining visual environment.
0: Who are the businesses that are doing well? I've been seeing a lot of things about... The uh, Dollar General, Dollar Tree, and these types of stores, they're going to be opening a lot of stores still.
2: The discount stores that you mentioned are absolutely thriving. Those and Five Below, which caters mostly to the tween-teen market, because so many people are on a budget these days with underemployment and unemployment, it's the bargain stores that are thriving, that are planning to open hundreds of stores across the nation. And those are ones that are not doing the bopus buy online pickup store trend. Those are just stores that are catering to people who need to economize and make sure that they have goods that they can afford.
0: Jennifer Kingston, Managing Editor for Business News at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you, Oscar.
3: San Francisco, San Jose, San Diego, also some of the country's leader in freelancers, especially in terms of like what percentage of their workforce is freelancers. But all these cities are doing as well as the rest of the country or in San Francisco and San Jose's case, even better. Joining
0: us now is Tim Puco, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Tim. Thanks for having me. We're reopening the country right now, although with these surge in cases right now, some states are putting a pause on the phases of their reopening, but still overall, we're reopening the country, and a part of the conversation is how we're going to recover from this. There's a lot of industries that have been really hard hit by this, the restaurant industry, the travel industry, all sectors, really, but one in particular have been people that do freelance work, creative freelancers. They have little job protection And they were some of the first people to start losing their jobs. They're going to be some of the last people to get back to normal. Tim, you wrote an article about how in L.A., there's a whole economy really built on these freelancers. Tell us a little bit about that.
3: If you think about the way TV shows are filmed, the way they're written, the way music artists perform, all of those things, people in close contact, audience members shoulder to shoulder, a lot of loud talking or singing, all of those things are some of the worst for trying to control the coronavirus and COVID-19. So the film industry in particular, and of course, all live performances are just completely shut down. And in Los Angeles, that means that a lot of independent contractors are affected. A lot of people who work on studio crews or who write shows or who act, these aren't full-time salaried employees. And so in a city like Los Angeles that is heavily dependent on arts and where a lot of workers come and go and can be hired and let go very quickly, that is where you see immediate and sometimes profound, very deep impact. I will say it gets even worse for a lot of those people. Because in L.A., of course, it's known people who are trying to make it as an actor or as a writer or as a singer, they're working second jobs as bartenders or waiters and waitresses or as teachers. And all of those jobs, too, are dependent on people being able to travel around to go into restaurants or to go to shows or, or to learn from somebody, to get training at a gym, what have you. And all of those jobs are on hold, too.
0: Talk a little bit about how there's a high percentage of these people in Los Angeles. I know you had a few graphs in your article, New York, obviously also uh, uh, similar, but LA has a very high percentage of this type of labor force.
3: When you talk about freelancers, I think you have to make a pretty sharp distinction because there are a lot of freelancers all over California and they've been affected in drastically different ways. So LA has some of the worst unemployment in the country at, according to state figures, more than 20%. We'll come back to LA in a second, but let's think about other cities in California, San Francisco, San Jose, San Diego, also some of the country's leader in freelancers, especially in terms of like what percentage of their workforce is freelancers, but all these cities are doing as well as the rest of the country or in San Francisco and San Jose's case, even better. A lot of those freelancers work in tech. These are people who probably already work from home, developing software, or doing IT remotely. And a lot of those jobs haven't gone away. You don't need an audience for those things. And so employment in those cities has been pretty resilient and has been pretty safe. But LA, on the other hand, again, it's all these creative positions where you have to be working in close quarters or where you're performing for an audience. And unemployment there has been at almost 20%, even while the rest of the state, the rest of California is only about 15.
0: And how have these freelancers been able to cope with things like unemployment benefits? Let's say. we know that there's a big federal emergency aid package that was giving people their money plus a six hundred dollars a week. I think that actually ends at the end of July. But how did they fare when it came to programs like that?
3: A lot of them have been able to get by so far. A lot of them keep a pretty good cushion because they know you know, if you're a freelancer, you're often on a knife's edge and you got to put away money during the fat times to get you through the lean times. So between that and the federal assistance that everybody got that you mentioned, a lot of the people I talked to were able to just kind of get by for the first couple months. But that money does end. Savings goes only so far. The last week of July is the last week that everybody gets the bigger amount of federal aid. And what is available for extended unemployment and then especially for freelancers is much, much smaller. $600 Is $600 a week, generally, You know, that's the general payment. That's what ends in July. But the money for extended unemployment and for freelancers in California is anywhere from about a third to two thirds of that. So it's a pretty drastic reduction that does go on for the end of the year. But in many cases, it's not going to be enough. A lot of the workers that I talk to, for the ones who have lost basically all of their employment, you know, September is a really scary time for them. You know, that's when they're going to have a month go by without any federal aid. And when that rent bill comes due at the end of August or the first September, a lot of them just don't know how they're going to pay it. And so they're already talking about maybe having to move. One person talked about a real estate license, which uh, real estate's not even that much of a better industry, or going back to school just for something else, moving back home with parents. The rubber will really meet the road. And a lot of these people, unfortunately, have very few options a, a month or two out
0: tim Puko, reporter at the wall street journal thank you very much for joining us
3: sure thank you for having me
0: that's it for today join us on social media at daily dive pod on both twitter and instagram leave us a comment give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in follow us on iheart radio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.